You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. It's been a minute for me. I've been gone for a while. Well, we've all been gone for a while. Uh, I'm, good morning, I'm Nick. I'm the pastor here in Illini Life, and I get to interrupt you from your phone. Uh, you filled out your connection card. Uh, it's good to be back together again. We've, uh, so many of us said that. Uh, a couple weeks away feels like a long time when a semester is only 18-ish weeks, so I'm glad to be back here with you this week. And I know this time of year can be a little bit chaotic. Uh, what did I hear this morning? I'm already burnt out again. <laughs> is, that, is that what you said, Pablo? Uh, well, I hope you had a restful break, or enjoyable, or usually how I determine if it's a good break, if I was productive. For me, it was none of those things because every one of my family members, we all had the plague and we were just getting healthy. We can still hear vestiges of congestion in me. Um, We just worked hard to get over illness. So I hope that wasn't your break. That was certainly ours in our household. Each and every one of us sick at some point. As I alluded to, right, I know this can be a stressful time of year, right? There's a lot of projects. There's final exams. Even those of us that work, right, there's, uh, we're pulling everything together, right? It's starting to count down, you know, you start to try to schedule those meetings, and somebody's like, oh, we're going to have to wait till next year for that one. And that just kind of feels like a bombshell. You're like, is it really already going to be next year? Are we that close? Uh, it can be a hectic time of year. You can feel the stress as you walk around campus, right? Everybody's in a hurry trying to get to those classes, get the papers submitted, get to your exams. And so in the midst of all of that, in the midst of those pressures and stress, as we do each year, as Advent sets in, we invite you to find your rest in Jesus this morning. We invite you to set aside the stresses, the strain, the projects, the exams, to set those aside for a moment and to focus on Jesus. They're still going to be there, right? But we can find our rest in Jesus this morning as we worship together. If you don't know, the, this is the season of Advent. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent in the church calendar is just the season of preparation for Christmas, season of waiting. We, we have hold things in tension here, right? We, we look to the past, to Jesus' first coming with celebration, right? That's what we're going to do at Christmas time, celebrate the birth of Jesus. But we also look forward to the second coming of Jesus with anticipation. The season of waiting, just as Israel waited on Jesus' birth in the first for the first coming, right? We wait for him in the second coming. And so we hold things in tension. We look forward and we look back during Advent. And in that space, we find our rest. We refocus and we ask God to refresh our faith. We focus on the core of our faith, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, and the second coming. If you haven't already, uh, join us on the Bible Uversion Bible reading app. We have a reading plan. We also have a paper reading plan you can follow along. Uh, I believe we have an image with a QR code that you can scan and, and get connected. But these, it's not working. That's all right. We'll, we'll just keep rolling with it. Uh, it didn't work when I sent it out the first time. So you may be on the wrong reading plan from the message because I failed at the internet. Uh, but you can also text your small group leader. They have the link uh, put out in the leadership community. Or just come find me after, after church. Or maybe we'll get it working. Uh, at some point. As I mentioned, we do have paper copies. You can follow this along, but the Uversion app allows us to sort of share uh, our reflections together. There's a chance to uh, reflect on the passage you read, usually just a handful of verses, a short devotional and prayer time. Uh, I love hearing what the Lord is shaping and teaching you each day. And uh, so to jump in with us on that, it's a way for us to be together, even 
when, uh, when it's not Sunday or small group time. Uh, today, to facilitate reflecting and refocusing our faith, as we've done for a long time here in this church, we're going to take today to look back at a passage from, of prophecy, foretelling the birth of Jesus. And I hope you had a chance to look at your passage in small group this week, to join with your small group. But now is our time to do our Bible study together, right here, together. I heard good questions coming out of small groups. I love hearing what you guys are all, what, what you get connected, what you get hooked on, what you're diving into, questions that come up, conversations that were had. See, for many of us, this passage we're going to study is really familiar, right? It's, uh, we know it. If you've been around the church, you know it. Even if not, like, it, it's just that common, right? It's, uh, it's the passage about sin entering creation. And even though it's a familiar passage, we still have a lot of questions, right? In my, in my discussion, I loved hearing, who's the serpent really? Do we know that's really? Like, let's, let's talk about this, right? Anyways, the reason I like us to, we, we like to look back to prophecy and then see it fulfilled in the birth of Jesus is this is the way that scripture works. And what I want, what I want us to see in this, this week and next week is that the, the Bible, our Bible is bookend pointing towards the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the first and second coming. We have all the way back in Genesis, which we'll look at this morning, we have Jesus prophesied. And then all the way at Revelation, as we look next week, we'll see the heavenly perspective of what that was like. I'm excited for these, these two messages. Next week, we'll get a chance to look at the birth narrative in Matthew and also a little bit from Revelation. So as we look at our passage today, we're going to understand the foundational reason for the coming of Jesus in the first place. That's why prophecy is helpful. It tells us why Jesus came in the first place. We're going to see all the way back at the beginning that just uh, that, that God's judgment poured out required that sin be paid for, that our captor, or that we be freed, and that Jesus would be that person. Uh, God pours out his judgment on the serpent, on Adam and Eve, and then he offers hope in this passage. And that's what we're going to see this morning. That hope is fulfilled in Jesus. The seed of the woman would come and bruise or crush the head of the serpent, just as he was promised. And that's, that's the passage this morning. So we're going to dive in and unpack that a bit. This is uh, often referred to as, uh, it's sort of a prototype prophecy. Uh, it offers immense hope, just like all prophecy does. It tells us that God will Will, will ultimately triumph, that he will uh, set things back to right. In, in prophecy, uh, we're called to repentance. We're called back to God to re repair what's been broken, and God provides hope that he will be there, that he'll provide that path for us. And so today, as we look at our passage, we're going to see the, what I would like to refer to as the darkest point in history, sin entering God's perfect creation. Yet hope is offered. In the darkest moment, there's a light. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they brought judgment and separation from God for all creation, not just them. All creation felt the effect of sin. Yet God prepared a way back for, for them. He prepared a way back to him for us. So, If you remember nothing else this morning, remember that when all creation, when we were doomed, God provides hope. Because God is in the business of providing hope. When we were doomed, God provided hope. That's what the passage is going to show us this morning. Let's unpack that. Let's dive in and look at our, our passage. Turn, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3 if you want to look at your Bible. I teach from the ESV. If you didn't know that, I will you know, generally have the passage up here so you can follow along if that's easier for you, <clears throat> whichever. Uh, we're going to pick up three chapters into the Bible. 
we're already in the established, perfect, completed creation. It's orderly, as God intended. It's very good. We're two chapters in, God has very intentionally created all that exists, and it's working well. Out of nothing, he creates everything. And he's placed man and his helper in the garden. And he's walked with them. He's had fellowship. He's been, he's with them. They're in relationship. And man and, and his helper are stewarding creation. They're, they're helping God. So let's read and see what happens from there. This is Genesis 3, picking up in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than other, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open. And they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to make loincloths. So there we have it. The entrance of disobedience into God's perfect creation. Disorder corrupting the orderly intent of God. It begins with the serpent. A crafty beast that God had made. One that will become synonymous with the evil one. Satan, the enemy of God will be consistently portrayed as a serpent or a dragon throughout Scripture. A created being who rebelled against God's design led humanity to do the same. Here we see the craftiness at play, right? Maybe you saw this in your, your discussions this week. The serpent sows seeds of doubt about God's goodness by asking a question, right? Because questions can be more than questions, can't they? They can be leading Questions can be loaded, intentioned, agenda-driven. This one clearly is. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Crafty, twisting. To which the woman, she must respond, because that's not what God said, right? And she's got to correct him. No, God didn't say that. So she clarifies what she recalls God said. Only she also misrepresents God's, what God said. She takes the bait and engages with the serpent. He set a trap, and she engages. No, God, God didn't say that we couldn't eat of any tree. We just can't eat of, we can eat of most of the trees, we just can't eat of that tree. And if we even touch it, we're going to die. And this, too, is a twisting of God's word. We look back at Genesis chapter 2, where the command was given. God actually told Adam, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Nothing about touching it. 
you've made this, made it more. The serpent seized the opportunity. He knew the, the woman had misrepresented God's command. He knew it wasn't true. She made it more overbearing, God more re legalistic, more controlling. You won't die, right? He continues to sow seeds of doubt and dissension in her mind. He already doesn't, she's already off the foundation of God's revelation, his truth to her, so he continues to push it. You won't surely die. He doesn't, he just doesn't want you to be like him, right? Sows doubt that God is good, that God has your best intention behind in mind. He just want your eyes open because then you're just going to be like him. And so with that, I like to think a spark landed on the kindling that was there. And she sees the fruit is good. She sees it's delightful in appearance is the language. It looks good to the eye. And it will open her eyes. She'll be wise. She'll see what she can't see. He takes and she eats and invites Adam to do the same. He does, and all creation becomes deeply fractured, and shame is felt for the first time. Immediately, the man and woman felt exposed and ashamed, so they seek to cover themselves. They sew fig leaves together and make loincloths to cover themselves, and they find security in hiding themselves, because shame causes us to hide. I don't think it's by accident that sin entered creation, that it's, it's marked by taking and eating, and that Jesus will later take those same words and reclaim them. See, the first fruit of the, the first time that we see this is here in the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Take and eat, and sin enters the world, and all chaos is let loose. Brokenness reigns. Yet later, Jesus will take the Passover elements and tell the disciples and us to take and eat and begin the process of destroying sin once and for all. Take and eat will send us to our doom, and take and eat will send us to our life later, our redemption in God that's brought through the human flesh, of God taking on human flesh and laying down his life on our behalf. What I find fascinating about this account of sin entering creation is it's, it's really no different than how I've experienced sin entering my life. Maybe you can relate. No different than how I've seen sin work in countless other lives and throughout history, right? <clears throat> the first man and the first woman, they misrepresented God's or misunderstood, misremembered God's command. They were twisted. It was twisted by the tempter. They were unable to defend what God said accurately. And then God was dethroned. They believed he wasn't good, that they could do better, or that they could be like God. And the opportunity before them seemed to, so appealing that they could do it better. And so they did. They tried to. The woman and the man, they ate of the fruit of the tree that they were forbidden to eat and tried to be like God. That's how sin works. How sin works in my life. I forget that I am not God and I'm not in control of all things. That the well-being of this church, that my family, that my life, the success I encounter, possessions I have, the food on my table, that it all doesn't rest on me. And I act like it does. I assume that it's all my responsibility, that I am God of my dominion, right? Of my household or world or pick your 
pick your dominion, right? And I act that way. And then something challenges it, right? My son disobeys, and I raise my voice, and I get angry because I'm the king and you challenged me, right? Or I'm God in this dominion and you challenged me, or that's the way I believe or act. And so there's fractured relationship, right? Maybe you can write, maybe, maybe it's uh, with your roommates, right? You have these, these expectations as a house. We're going to wash our dishes, right? Because this comes up all the time for decades and decades with all of us in college ministry. We're all going to wash our dishes. And this, this roommate just, you know they're taking advantage of you because you wash their dishes. And so they just constantly leave the dishes on the sink. And so like a good brother or sister in Christ, you wash the dishes because that's what Jesus would do. But not before you tally. This is the fifth time this week. They're just taking advantage of me. I know they just don't, right? I am important and you're wasting my time with your dirty dishes. And so you're in the middle of, a, of studying for that exam that's coming up next week and they call you because it's freezing rain because we live in a horrible place and they need a ride from campus. <laughs> and you're like, I did your dishes all week and I still need to study. So you can find a bus or a ride home some other way and maybe you'll think about doing your dishes next time, right? You've made yourself God in this situation. <laughs> You've made yourself of utter importance over a dish, right? The, the point is the pathway to sin is started long before we begin the fractured relationship, long before we take the plunge to raise our voice or to grow angry and, and speak out of anger or to take the, those actions, right? Maybe you can relate, or maybe not. Um, uh, I'm, way off, I'm way off topic at this point. Way off script, sorry. Uh, the point is sin begin, uh, the pathway to sin begins long. It, it's got a long runway. It begins long before the actual moment, and that's what we saw. God's, God's truth was twisted. The woman took the bait. She twisted it further, misunderstood it further. God's commands get misrepresented in our hearts. Our, our lives get challenged. We, we believe the father of lies that we're the one in control and we act that way. We think we can do it better than God. And that's the source of sin, often, in creation. It was the source then and it continues to be. See, for sin to enter creation, the serpent only needed to sow doubt. The humans needed to misrepresent God's directions and then they needed to remain in place for space for temptation to do its work and grow. See, if we're tempted to sin, we need to flee. And Adam and Eve would have done well to flee from the serpent in the first place. They didn't. They, provide, they stayed in place. They, provide, they allowed the means and mechanisms of sin to take hold for the opportunity to be before them. See, if, if we sin in our anger, in, in our speech towards other when we're others more angry. When we feel offended or, or we're feeling amped up, we would do well to ask, be excused for a moment and step away and take a breath. We need to do this often, in particular in parenting. <laughs> you take a moment, take a breath, step away, allow God to remind me of truth and operate from that rather than opening my mouth and letting sin come out and hurt those around me. 
if, uh, put it real practically, if, if you're tempted to sin or we're tempted towards, to sin through dishonest gain, through, through taking things that don't belong to us, right, or, or stealing, right, which is a thing, right, it's, uh, then, then we would do well to not put ourselves in situations where we have access to other people's, managing other people's possessions or money, right? That'd be a temptation, so we should keep ourselves from that, of taking or being able to take advantage of others or take what doesn't belong to us. Right? And if we're tempted towards lust in our lives, which statistically we all are, right? we would do well to flee from the means and mechanisms of, op- of acting on that lust when it presents itself. We take our thoughts captive. We, we turn our gaze away when, uh, when we're tempted to look at others as an object of our lust. We do divert our attention. We take our thoughts captive, as Paul talks about. And above all, we need to know the word of God that safeguards us against sin in our lives. We need to know what God really said rather than what the serpent is trying to deceive us to believe, or rather than what our hearts maybe overly legalized or or made more of what God said. We need to know the word and let the truth of God reign in our lives. Let's keep moving through our passage and see how this all continues to unravel. What's the response as sin enters creation? We already began to see it at the end of our previous section. So picking back up in uh, verse 8, we're going to see God, uh, God enter the scene and ask some questions, right? He's wondering what happened here. And we're going to see how the man and the woman respond. So let's read verse 8. And they heard the sound of, God, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And, and he, the man, said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord enters the scene. And the man and the woman, they heard him and they flee. They hide. Because shame causes us to hide. Because sin causes that innate response in us. We feel ashamed. And so we try to hide it. To cover up our wrongdoing, to hide our disobedience, to, to reshape the story and cast ourselves in a better light or to literally hide what we're doing, right? Just as the first man and woman did. God is walking in the garden, and they hide from him for the first time, rather than seeking relationship and being with him. They hide from God. We've continued to hide from God ever since. Now, God is God, right? He knows all. He wouldn't be God if he wasn't, (laughs) if he didn't, right? It's actually pretty silly, right, for us to think that we can hide. And the man and woman knew him well <laughs> to think that they could hide. They find comical. He sees all, he knows all. Yet graciously, right, he calls out to the man and woman. Where are you, he says. I'm looking for you. I desire you. I came to find you. God gives them a chance to explain. He comes to them to restore relationship. And what explanation does the man offer? I heard you and I hid myself because I was afraid. 
was afraid of you, God. I was afraid because I was naked. Fear and shame and hiding. That's the aftermath of sin entering God's perfect creation. They weren't prior before sin. They're sin's fruit. They are a byproduct of sin. When we are afraid and feel shame, they are echoes of the doom we are under from our disobedience, both as individuals and as humanity as a whole. How does God respond, right? He responds graciously. He asks another question to draw him out. Be in relationship with me. Talk to me, God is saying. How did this happen? Who told you you were naked? God knows exactly how this has happened, right? God. And he knows how Adam would understand the concept of nakedness, how he would have gotten there, and he even alludes to it. Did you eat from the tree I told you not to? So Adam explains, and he begins the blame shift game, right? Adam points the finger to the woman, who points the finger to the serpent, right? No one takes responsibility or ownership for what they did. No one takes responsibility for their own disobedience. Adam, Adam even puts the blame on God. The woman you gave me, she gave it to me. It's really, it's, it's all, it's your fault, God. We wouldn't be in this situation if you hadn't given her to me in the first place. Sin's aftermath, it's not only fear and shame. It's blame shifting and squirming. It's another way of hiding. It's reshaping the narrative to minimize our wrongdoing. It wasn't really that bad, right? Or, well, I wasn't the one that did it. He gave it to me. It's saying, well, uh, <clears throat> in my life, it, it comes up. Well, I wouldn't have had to raise my voice if you just obeyed in the first time, son. Right? Yeah, that works well. Works well, Nick. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, like, it, it's, it's questioning with an agenda <laughs> to your roommate about the dishes, right? It's challenging your professor in a pretty insubordinate way because you disagree with the grade you got. And say, oh, I'm just trying to understand. I'm just trying to understand, right? No, you're sinning, right? I'm sinning. That's what we're doing. We're blame shifting, we hide, we, we do all kinds of different ways of trying to squirm out from, make ourselves look better. Sin's aftermath in our lives, it leaves us denying accountability and shirking responsibility for our actions, right? Putting it at someone else's fault. Well, I sinned because you caused me to sin. I ate the fruit because the woman you gave me, God, it's technically not my fault, it's really your fault, God. That's, that's what Adam's saying. That's blame shifting, and that's part of sin's aftermath in our lives. And we take on incredibly creative ways to continue to try to hide, squirm out from the consequences of sin in our lives. And all of this is because the serpent, right, was more crafty than any creature that God created. He was a master of lies and deception, and he's taught us to be the same. He's taught us to shift blame and hide, to twist God's words. Only there's no hiding from fear of wronging a just and good God. And they know judgment is coming. They know God will bring judgment. And that's where the story continues. Let's keep reading and see what judgment for disobedience looks like in this case. Here we're going to see God address all the responsible parties, right? And, and, and offer judgment. But in the midst of that, he offers hope. Let's read. This is a longer section, and uh, we'll kind of go through in three sections. Uh, uh, the Lord God, this is picking up in 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, man, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, taken. for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Pain, hardship, toil, hard work, cursed. These are all heavy words, right? Why are we talking about this at Christmas time, Nick? Right? The heavy words, all creation, all relationships are marred by the entrance of sin into God's perfect creation. There's hostility between humanity and the creatures. The beautiful gift of childbearing has become immensely more painful for the woman. The intentionally designed relationship between the man and the woman becomes complicated. Right? The, the compliments, the, the, the way they're supposed to compliment one another to help one another has been fractured. God's intent was for them to love and cherish one another that now the tendency will be towards desire and dominion, ruling over rather than serving alongside. The man's work, it becomes harder and painful. Adam, who was given the task of stewarding God's creation, now has creation resisting him. Their relationship is broken. The ground is even at odds with him. The serpent told them a lie, that they would be like God, and they disobeyed, they believed it. They disobeyed and they ate the fruit to try to be like God. They did it, and everything went into upheaval, all of creation. They believed the lie that they could be like God, and it ruined everything. God ends the judgment with a reminder that they were dust. Out of dust you came, and dust you shall return. The dust was never intended to hold the entire universe together. Dust was never intended to rule over creation. Dust was never intended to create and keep God's perfect design in place. And so it broke everything when dust tried to do it. And that's what sin does in our lives. When we try to be God, it breaks everything. This is doom. This is darkness, right? Judgment brought upon all creation through the disobedience of the man and the woman. It brought destruction to God's good masterpiece. All corners of creation affected by sin's entrance. Yet in the midst of the darkness, there's hope. Did you catch it? Did you notice God's offer of hope as he pronounced judgment on the serpent? This is the key. Verse 15. Let's look at it again. 
God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's hostility between the serpent and humanity. The deceiver and humanity are at war from this moment on. That's the point. That's what this is saying. And one will come who will bruise, or, or another translation, crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent will just merely bruise his heel, strike his heel. Which, uh, let me tangent here, because I, I think this is some godly things you should think about. This is why you should have the instinct to flee every time you see a snake or kill it, right? <laughs> you should. And uh, maybe you can relate to that. But uh, there's nothing godly about snakes, right? And I'm, I'm going to, I'll stand by that one. Uh, if you're the kind of person that thinks snakes are, are friends and they're good, then I just come, come read this passage a few more times. Uh, the snake is not the, he's not the hero in this story. Yuck. <laughs> Obviously, I'm kidding, right? Like, but I really don't like snakes. If a snake is in my yard, that's the end of its life. I'm just telling you that, right? That's the way this works in, in my life. Um, they're, they're nasty creatures, and they should be eliminated. And I think the evil one chose to represent himself this way intentionally. So there's war between me and every snake, and I think that was what God said there in Genesis. Anyways, I, I like to refer to this passage, back into series. I like to refer to this passage as the serpent head crusher passage. Some of you have heard that phrase out there. I love that phrase, serpent head crusher. Um, that translation is so much more rich for what the Hebrew says here. If you pick up a theology book, and, and I'll drop this because some of you like when, when we talk the fancy words, right? This is the proto-evangelium. This is the beginning glimpse of the gospel. This is the start of the gospel message all the way back here in the beginning. It's the prototype of the good news, the glimmer of the gospel. It's all the way back here at the beginning of all things going wrong, right? The entrance of sin into creation. God hints that he has a plan to set things back to right, to destroy the evil one and rescue his creation from sin's hold. The New Testament, they clearly pick up on this and they run with this. The New Testament authors see this prophecy and they unmask the serpent for who he is. He's Satan. This is the evil one. That's who's behind this, right? The serpent, serpent becomes synonymous in the, in the New Testament as the enemy of God, the father of lies, right? In Romans 16, Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love that. Memorize that as a young believer. God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's a tie back to this prophecy. This is what God is doing. He's going to crush the serpent. He will defeat Satan once and for all. Revelation 12 tells us of the casting of Satan out of heaven. The great dragon was thrown down in the ancient serpent, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him, right? Serpent is God's enemy and he will be defeated. Prophecy uttered in the judgment and we have hope in that. This prophecy is particularly memorable for me. Some of you have been around for a long while. Maybe you remember when I broke my foot a few years ago. Several years ago, there was a fall semester that was just going really challenging for us. Uh, our sewer line collapsed, and we had sewage in our basement that had to get cleaned up. Then we had to repair the sewer line, which cost us a ridiculous amount of money. And then I was about two and a half weeks out from my big race for the season, and I broke my right foot, falling off a step stool at the Alani Life office. And then... In December, when it was freezing, because that's how these things work, 
our furnace stopped working. I decided I needed to go and investigate why my furnace wasn't working. On crutches, I hobbled down my basement stairs. Why, Amy begged me to call somebody else to come take a look at this. Peppers live across the street, JD's around the corner, Alan's down the road. I mean, somebody else surely could have helped me, but me and my thick-headedness decided it depends on me. This is my house, it's my furnace. I'm going down with broken foot and all. So, is it the pilot light? Is the breaker off? What's going on? Let's see how to fix this. What's going on? And as I start to get to my furnace, a snake there's a way, slowly. As my heart races because a spawn of Satan is in my house, <laughs> and I tell Amy to get back, take my crutch, and I place it on the head of the snake, and I put all my weight on it. I crushed the head of the serpent. And at that moment, God brought this passage to my mind because I was being the serpent head crusher in my life. In all seriousness, what God convicted me of in that moment was that as adversity had come my way, I soldiered on trying to do everything I was supposed to do, to not lean on anybody else, to drain the bank account, to pay for the repairs that needed to happen, to insist on getting myself around campus even though my right foot was broken and I couldn't ride a bike or drive a car. Right? The Kleppers were living with us while their house was being uh, their addition was being built. And uh, Kim is a very gracious person and would often offer to carry my water or my plate to the table so I could eat. And I would insist on just standing in the kitchen on my crutches trying to do things and move around. And she is a kind woman and didn't convict me of my sin. But <laughs> I was trying to be God in my life in so many ways. And that's what God showed me in that moment. I was trying to be the serpent head crusher in my life. And often that is the tendency to try to do it without God, to try to not put my trust in him, to not look to him in, t in times of hardship for comfort or provision. And so, God challenged me with this prophecy. I can still hear God often, Nick, you're not the serpent head crusher. That's my job. My job to defeat the evil one. It's my job to do it all, not yours. So let's let God be the serpent head crusher in your life. If your tendency is like mine to try to think that you're God in all situations and it depends on you, let's let God be the, the serpent head crusher instead of us doing it ourselves. See, God is the one that defeats the serpent, not us. God brings that about. Our passage this morning makes that very clear. Let us be a people who look to God to defeat sin in our lives. We look to God to, to set the world back to right instead of acting like it depends on us. Be a people who look to God to defeat the evil one once and for all. And so as we've seen in our passage, in the face of judgment, God provided hope of one who would defeat the evil one. The serpent may have been more crafty than all the creatures God created, but God was ultimately the one in control and still is. And he prepared to do to go to great lengths to defeat sin once and for all and its instigator once and for all. In the judgment of sin, there is hope. And that's what I want us to see this morning. And that promised one, the promised serpent head crusher is Jesus, right? There's, there's no other answer. It's Jesus is the one that defeats the serpent. He is the head crusher, not Nick, not you. 
He is the rescuer of humanity, the restorer of all creation. He is the one that defeated sin through his death and resurrection. You see, in the birth of Jesus, the prophesied offspring arrived. The one that would crush the serpent arrived. And we have a chance to remember that story next week. Come back and be with us as we look at Matthew's gospel and the story of Jesus' birth. We also have a chance to look at the perspective from the heavenly realm, from Revelation, and see what, what it looked like from John's perspective as God called him up and revealed and recorded in the book of Revelation. We see that, that the, the serpent is trying at all, with all his might to prevent the birth of Jesus, right? We see him trying to hatch plans through his puppet Herod to kill the children in Bethlehem, to get rid of Jesus, right? To, to bring the, uh, the wise men back to him so he could find out where he can go and destroy Jesus to get rid of him, right? And in the Revelation account, you see the, the dragon, the ancient serpent, the evil one, waiting to devour and take, snatch up the offspring. Yet, God saw fit that he wouldn't be devoured that he would go on to adulthood, that he would live a life, a sinless life, that he would die death on the cross, that he would raise to new life, dealing the death blow to the serpent, his sin, freeing humanity from our captor. And when he returns, which we await, he will restore all creation. Everything will go back the way he intended. It will all be healed and restored. Just as Revelation chapter 20 tells us, he will destroy Satan once and for all, and he will reign supreme. You see, when we were doomed, in the darkest moment, God provided hope. And that hope was inaugurated at the birth of Jesus. It was multiplied over and over again in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it will be ultimately fulfilled to completion, overflowing, when Jesus returns. So as we move through Advent, let us be a people who anchor our hope in Jesus, the serpent head crusher, the rescuer, the restorer, and the redeemer. And let us be careful to not dethrone God and put ourselves in the place of Jesus. Will you pray with me?